Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephthah, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Father in heaven, I rejoice over your divine name. Uh, Father, you are glorious and good and awesome in every way. Father, we praise your sovereignty. We praise your power. We praise your wisdom. God, we praise you because you're you're the best thing in all the universe. And Father, we ask that we might know you. We ask that you would reveal yourself here this morning. God, be merciful to us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, good. Felt like I was a little in a hole. Um, I want to set up the context. We're starting a new series, and so you might be asking, man, this is the first time I've ever been in the book of Exodus. You might be saying, who is this guy Moses? So 
in case that is you, I want to do a good job in setting the scene for you, all right? So what, who is Moses? What is this time period? What's going on here in the Bible? Well, the Bible begins with what we call creation. God creates the world in six days, and it's really good. I mean, it's paradise. It is Adam and Eve living in perfect harmony with God. It's everything they could ever imagine, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, and then sin enters the world. Uh, the serpent came, and basically he deceived Adam and Eve. He told them that they couldn't trust God. He told them that God was holding out on them. God wasn't really that good. Uh, God, God was holding back good things from them. And in a terrible tragedy, Adam and Eve did not trust God. They didn't believe him. They trusted the serpent. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and everything got wrecked. Okay? We call that the fall. Okay? So creation, fall. Now, the fall brought in sin to the world, and sin quickly spread and wrecked everything. It really wrecked the world. In fact, not too long after the fall, in the book of Genesis, we find what we call the flood. Now, the flood was basically the world was so wrecked and so broken and so, so ravaged by sin that God said, I'm going to have to judge the world of sin, and I'm going to have to start over with one family, the family of Noah. And God did indeed just that. So we have creation, fall, flood. This is our God story. We're going to be going over it in, uh, in the fall if you've never gone through it before. We usually do about one a year. But creation, fall, flood, promises, okay? What happens next is that God appears to a man named Abraham. And God tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do some things for you. I'm going to make you some promises. Abraham, you're 75 years old. You got no kids. Your wife is barren. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to have a son. And that son's going to have many descendants. And those descendants are going to turn into a nation. And that nation is going to have its own land. And through you, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bring somebody who's going to save the world. Who's going to bless all the families of the earth. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Well, guess what? God fulfilled his promises. Abraham had a son at 100 years old. Uh, that son, Isaac, had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. The second to youngest son, Joseph, was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt in a prison cell. And through God's providence, God brought him out of that prison and actually exalted him to be the prime minister of Egypt. And in a time of horrific famine where Israel, Jacob, and, and his sons were about to die of starvation, they come to Egypt and Joseph has provided for them. Joseph brings them in, 70 persons, the Bible tells us at this time. That's how many sons and children and wives and everything those 12 sons had had. 70 people come to Egypt and they settle there in Egypt. Well, after that, Joseph died dies and Pharaoh dies and a new Pharaoh comes on the scene or maybe maybe a new Pharaoh after the new Pharaoh and pretty soon the Pharaoh looks out and says hey who are you guys again you Israelite guys you know why are you here and by the way you're going to be my slaves and he enslaves the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 430 years and that brings us to Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, you'll notice what God says in verse 23. God says that the Israelites groaned because of their slavery, because of their oppression, because of their, the, the difficulties in their life. And they groaned because of their slavery. And it says they cried out for help. And then look at verse 24. It says God heard their groaning. God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I've got those underlined in my Bible. They're, they're so beautiful. Ready? God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. All right? In fact, God tells us the same thing again in verse 7 as he's speaking to Moses. It says, The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people here in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. All right? Now, what is God telling us there? God is telling us that he hears the cry of his people. 
Okay? Whenever, whenever your life is broken in sin, whenever your heart is broken in sin, whenever your family is broken in sin, whenever your world is broken in sin, and you cry out to God, this very clearly tells us God hears that. God hears that. God sees that. God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises. He knows your pain. He is watching. You should cry out, and you should keep crying out. You should keep calling out to God. In fact, there's a parable written in the New Testament in Luke 18 in which Jesus tells this parable. It says, listen, you should never give up asking God for deliverance, asking God to, to heal the brokenness in your own heart and in your own family and in your own marriage and in your own children and in your own town. You should never stop crying out. The purpose of the parable in Luke 18, Jesus says, is that you would cry out and not give up, all right? Now, I want to, I want to use as an example the Israelites, all right? Israel was in captivity. They were enslaved. They were oppressed. They were held down. And how long had they been crying out? 400 years, my friends, 400 years. David, my, my buddy, he does this. Uh, he, I saw him do this. It was a little bit mean, I thought, at the time, but it's a great illustration. He had a team kid class, a cat class of kids, and he was teaching through Exodus. And so he tells them on the first night, he says, guys, I promise you I'm going to bring every one of you a Coke, right? Everybody's super excited. They all come back the next week ready for their Coke. There's no Coke. And, and David says, hey, guys, I just want you all to know, I promise you, I'm going to bring you a Coke. And so they come back the next week all ready for their Coke, and there's no Coke, right? There's no, there's no, there's no pop. And, and, and at this point, he takes a survey. He says, how many of you believe that I'm going to bring you a Coke? Well, most of the class, you know, they, he was a good teacher. He would built a relationship with them. Most of the class said, yeah, we believe. A couple of the naysayers are like, you said you was going to do it last week. You didn't do it. Didn't do it two weeks ago. You know, I don't believe you, right? Well, next week comes. He comes, and there's, there's no Coke. And he says, all right, I'm taking another survey. How many of you believe that I'm going to bring you Coke? At this point, most of them fell out. There was only a couple that kind of held in there. And true believers, yes, I believe. Next week, he comes back. He says, there's no Coke. He says, how many of you believe I'm going to bring you a Coke? Not one of them believed that they were going to bring. And then he teaches this story in Exodus. These guys cried out to the Lord. God promised them deliverance, and they cried out for 400 years years. Isn't that incredible? 400 years, they cried out for deliverance, and God is answering them with Moses. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, 400 years. What is the deal with God's timing, right? That's, that's one of the struggles that we have, isn't it? One of the struggles that we have in following Jesus is this whole issue of timing, right? Like we call out to God, we call out for deliverance, we call out for the brokenness in our life to be fixed and be taken away, and, and, and many times it doesn't happen on our schedule, right? We would really love to sit down with God and open up our calendars and say, okay, God, let, let's go through what is an appropriate amount of time for you to answer my call, right? I've got this hard thing in my life. I have this painful thing in my life. God, I want you to take it away. And by the way, could you do it by next Thursday? That, that's good for me. Is that good for you, God? Right? That's what we want to do. We, we have this issue of timing. We have this issue of learning to trust the timing of God. Let, let, me, let me give you one great encouragement. I, I, I want you to hear this this morning, okay? I want you to hear this. Whatever your brokenness, whatever your oppression, whatever your injustice, whatever's not right in your life, please hear this out. God is fixing it in Jesus Christ, okay? God is fixing it. It is being fixed. Every right, every wrong is going to be righted. He's going to make all things new. It will happen, I promise you. It is a matter of God's timing. It is a matter of learning to trust 
his timing. Most time for you and I, we, we, don't, we don't ever get to know why God, why God did things when he did them. For most of the time, we don't, we don't get to see that until glory. In this case, we actually get to know, okay? So when you go back to Genesis chapter 15, we get a little bit of clue what God's doing here. Way back in Genesis 15, now remember, this is before Moses, this is before Israel, this is before Jacob, this is before Isaac, this, this is before any of this has happened. When God's speaking to Abraham about his promises, he tells him this. He tells him this in verse 15. He says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Okay, he doesn't name Egypt, but he says they're, they're going to they're gonna dwell in a land that's not theirs. And then he says, and they will be servants there, okay? And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God actually gives a time frame here in Genesis. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. He says, I'm going to bring judgment on that nation. We're going to get to see that here in the weeks to come, uh, that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then look at the next verse. And they shall come back here. They're going to come back to the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's a fascinating phrase. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the promise land's not ready, okay? So God said, I'm, I'm going to bring you as a nation, and I'm going to put you in the promised land, but I'm not going to do it now, Abraham. You know why? Because there's people there, and, and, and their iniquity is not yet complete. A lot of people, when they open up their Old Testament, they struggle with God. They, they struggle with a God who sovereignly moves people where he wants them. They struggle with a God who comes in and, and tells the Israelites, I want you to wipe out the inhabitants of the promised land. Man, for a lot of people, that's, that's an issue. Okay? They struggle with, with, with God doing that. Um, I, I would just say a couple things to that. First of all, uh, I, I have really come to a place in my life where I, I, I believe God is God and I'm not. Okay? And, and I believe that he is wise and, and I want to be wise like him. In other words, I, don't, I, don't, I try not to put myself over God. I try not to put myself in a position where I'm judging God because I don't think I have the appropriate vantage point to do that. But I want you to see this, this thing here. Okay? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we know about those, those people in the, uh, that lived in that nation, we know they, they worshiped Tanit, they worshiped Baal. Horrible, horrific things were happening among them. And I want you to see that God waited around 500 years to bring judgment on them. Okay? 500 years. Now, here's, here's my offer to you this morning. I think whenever, whenever you show patience to somebody who is wicked and uh, who is sinful and who is destructive, when you show patience to them for 500 years, I believe you have earned the right to have a discussion with God about his timing, okay? But I don't know about you guys. I have trouble being patient with somebody for five minutes, okay? And so I, I, I think I struggle with, with judging God for his timing here, okay? So God... Uh, God, God tells Moses this is going to happen. He's going to deliver them. He's, he's going to bring them out. And so the point is, don't stop calling. Don't stop calling out. The Israelites called out for 430 years. Please don't stop calling out for your spouse. Please don't stop calling out for your kids. Please don't stop crying out to God for your neighbors, for your church, for your small group. I was thinking about small groups starting up here in a couple weeks, and I just had this thought. I wonder how many people persevere in praying for their small group. How, how many people will hang in there? We, we are so tempted to drop out in prayer. We're so tempted to fall out in prayer. And, 
And here you've got the Israelites calling out to God for 430 years. And God says, I have heard, I have saw, I have listened, I have remembered, and I'm going to deliver you. And he's going to do it through Moses. So chapter 3, verse 10, he says to Moses, come and I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you're going to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is going to do it. God is answering their prayers in his timing, in his perfect timing, and he's going to do it through Moses. Now, I know a lot of you might want to raise your hand right here and say, hey, um, who is this Moses guy, by the way? What do we know about him? Okay, I'm glad you asked that, okay? So if we turn back a page in in Exodus chapter 1, we kind of get Moses' story, okay? So what's happening? Well, the children of Israel, they've been slaves in Egypt for how long? 430 years, right? Well, they were not doing nothing during that 430 years, okay? Because remember, they came to Egypt, 70 people, all right? At this point, we, we don't know exactly how many, but estimates or t- estimates say what the scripture says and, and how many men came out and families. It, it's in the millions, okay? So what was Israel doing during those 430 years? Well, they were being fruitful and multiplying, okay? When you open up your Bible to page 1, and God creates Adam and Eve, the first command that he gives to them is be fruitful and multiply. Man, these Israelites knew how to do that. They knew how to be fruitful and multiply. By, by the way, there is a fantastic article on the Gospel Coalition. This is just a little advertisement. Okay, it's, this is an aside. Gospel Coalition has a fantastic article about birth rate versus, uh, versus religion. Okay, or not, birth rate combined with religion. What they have found is the more zealous a people are for God, the more kids they have. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Uh, in, in Europe, where secularism has taken over, birth rates are absolutely plummeting. They're not even at, at replacement level. In America, they're becoming not replacement level. You know what they're doing in Africa? In Africa, in the Christian nations, the nations that are predominantly or at least 50% Christian, they are booming. Birth rates are, are tripling, quadrupling. Populations are tripling and, and quadrupling. By 2050, this article, and, and by the statistics, I think they're probably right. By 2050, if nothing else changes, sub-Saharan Africa will be the hub of the Christian world. It will not be America. If things don't change, if things don't change, the great churches of the world, the, the great mission-sending agencies of the world, it will not be the America. By 2050, it'll be Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, Ethiopia. I mean, it's incredible. But when you look at just the numbers, all right, that, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. So the Israelites are being fruitful, and they're multiplying, okay? Now, Pharaoh gets real nervous about that, right? Because here you've got this slave population that's just booming and growing. He starts thinking, these, these guys, if they revolt, they're going to take us over. So you know what he does? He does a, an old trick of Satan, okay? He starts killing babies, all right, he starts slaughtering the baby boys of Egypt. I, I don't know if you've read much about the abortion industry in America, but I, what I want you to see is that is not a new thing, okay? Satan has had that design and plan from millennia ago. In, in, in Egypt, it was, it was Pharaoh slaughtering the baby boys of, of, uh, of Israel. Uh, I stood in an archaeological dig in North Africa not too long ago, several years ago, where they were unearthing 20, they had unearthed so far 20,000 remains of little children the same age who were offered on a burning altar to the goddess Tanit. Okay? And they just finally stopped digging because of the bad press. Um, that, that, that's an age-old design of Satan. Satan hates babies, all right? And so in Exodus 1, Pharaoh is slaughtering the baby boys of Egypt. 
Moses' mother and father will not submit to that. They hide Moses. She has Moses. Uh, They hide Moses until they can't hide him anymore. And then by the providence and wisdom of God, uh, Moses' mother puts little Moses in a basket, covers him, puts him in the Nile River. The basket happens to float by right where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Now, I happen to believe that God is just providentially always working in all circumstances. And I think he had prepared Pharaoh's daughter for that day. You know, women have this, like, thing that kind of comes on them sometime, and it's not very rational. I remember back in 1992, we were sitting at McDonald's. I was a happy college student. We had 29 cents. And so we had gotten a twist cone at McDonald's, and we were licking on that twist cone, that 29-cent cone. And all of a sudden, my wife's just falling apart, just bawling, like weeping, like ice cream and tears running all down her face. And I was like, what is wrong with you, woman? And a little Amish couple had come in, and they had a brand new newborn, and they had taken that little newborn out of the little basket, and she was rocking that baby, and my wife just falling apart. I said, what is wrong with you, woman? And she said, I want a baby, you know, and I was like, we're in college, you know. We, we, we have 29 cents. That, that we bought an ice cream. This is all we've got. You have a baby? I don't care. I want, I want you. Anyway, I think I think that's where Pharaoh's daughter was. I think I think God had prepared her for that. She opens up that basket. She got to have him. She swoops Moses up. She's got a baby now. In God's providence again, Miriam, Moses' older sister, had followed over to see what would happen to the baby. She comes up to Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter and says, "Ma'am, I see that you have a baby. Do you need a nurse? Do you need someone to nurse that baby? You know, I I happen to know some Israelite ladies." who can do that? Pharaoh's daughter's like, yes, I do. And she, she goes and gets someone. Who's she go get? Moses' mother. Isn't that beautiful? That God, God, God pay, God has Pharaoh pay Moses to raise, or Moses' mother to raise the deliverer of Egypt, right? I love that. So there they go. So Moses grows up 40 years in the palace of Egypt, being raised by his mother. He knows who he is. He secretly knows who he is. And at 40 years old, he sees the oppression of God's people, and he decides, I'm going to do something about this. But whenever we take things in our own hands, we tend to do what? Mess them up. Moses ends up killing this Egyptian slave master, this taskmaster, ends up killing him. He ends up having to flee into the wilderness. And for the next 40 years... For the next 40 years, Moses is a shepherd. So now Moses is 80 years old, okay? I don't know if anybody in here is 80. You don't have to raise your hand. But just imagine, this is when Moses' life really begins to get interesting, okay? Isn't that that pretty cool? So at 80 years old, Moses is, is out in the wilderness herding his sheep, and God appears to him in a burning bush. Now, I want you to notice exactly what the Scripture says here because it's very important. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. All right? Now, a lot of people just think this is an attention getter, you know? It's like Moses is herding a sheep, and God needs him to come over and talk to him, so he set the bush on fire, okay? There is a lot more going on here than that, okay? Notice exactly what the Scripture says. It says that the bush was burning, but it was not being consumed. We know a lot about fires at our house. Asher wants a fire every night. He wants a campfire every night. I submit about once every week and a half or so. Uh, a couple nights ago, I was like, fine, go, go get the sticks. He gathers the sticks, gathers the wood. You know, I get a fire starter. We get a fire. We got a raging fire going. He loves to throw stuff in there and burn stuff and everything. But he's also very distractible. And so I was working, sitting in my chair working. We've got a fire going there. And pretty soon, I, he, he says, Dad, Dad, the fire's out. And sure enough, it was out. We had had a raging fire. 
fire, and now it was out. So his brothers taught him how to kind of fan the flames, right? So he's over there blowing on it. He's got ash going everywhere. It's going all over me, all over him. I was like, buddy, there's no more wood, you know? Like, like the wood is gone. Like, you can't restart the fire with no wood. There's no fuel, because you and I know that about fire, right? You can have a raging fire, an unapproachable energy source of fire, but once the wood is gone, once whatever is burning is gone, it's gone, right? Like the fire goes out. It, okay, this is something different. This is a bush that's burning, but it's still green. The bush still has berries. The bush still has flowers. The bush is not being burned up. You have this raging source of energy that is burning, yet is not burning anything up. It is not fed by anything. It is not fueled by anything. The fire is unto itself an energy source. Okay, now, everybody remember what I just said for 10 minutes, okay? And we're going to come back to it. Can you do that? Remember what I just said about the fire, okay? So, all right, God speaks to him through this bush, okay? God commissions him to go and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses then asks the wrong question. If you're, if you're like me, you're just like Moses. Man, I'm telling you what, I was saved in, in May of 1990. And for, for years, I was asking the wrong question. Every time I opened up my Bible, which was a lot. When God saved me, man, I was like, okay, God, I want it. I want it all. Show me what you got. I want you. I, I'm not sure who you are even, but I want you. I want you. And I was, I was zealous in the scriptures, but I was always asking the wrong question. You know what question I was asking? I would open up my Bible, and you know what I'd look for? I'd look for, what does it say about me? What does it say about what I should do? What does it say about what commands should I obey? I, when I first got saved, I loved the command parts of the Bible. <laughs> I loved those sections that were like, you know, you know be zealous and, and repent and, and, and forgive your brother and forgive your enemy and, and love, your, love your neighbor. Man, I, I love the command stuff because I was always looking at what does this say about me? That's actually the wrong question to be asking. You see, Moses asking in, in chapter 3, verse 11, he, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's the wrong question. Moses is asking, what, what qualifications do I have? You know, who am I that, I that you would think that I could do this, that I could go to Pharaoh and, and ask the most important man in the world yeah, and tell him, command him to let go of his labor force? Like, who am I to do that, God? I don't, I don't have any qualifications. Listen, that's, that's the wrong question to be asking. That, that's not the point. A lot of times when we, when we think about serving the Lord, we start thinking about, well, I'm average I'm average stature, I'm average intelligence, I'm terrible at algebra. Uh, you know, I, I can do this pretty good and that pretty good. You know, God, is that, listen, that, that, that's, that's the wrong question. That's the not important question. In fact, God doesn't answer his question. A lot of times God will do that. When you ask a dumb question, he just doesn't answer it. And he doesn't answer it here, okay? So Moses says, who am I that I, that I should go to Pharaoh? And listen how God answers him. Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? God says, I'll be with you. That, that, that's what I'm telling you. Actually, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. When Jesus commissioned you, his church, his people, to take the gospel to the nations, that, that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what he said. I'm with you. Like, like who are you? doesn't matter. What matters is, who is God? And so in verse 13, Moses finally asked the right question, okay? Now, the right question is, who is God? 
Verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? That is the right question. Man, I hope that is the question you are asking about life. Not, not who are you? Not, not who's your neighbors? Not, not, that's, that's the wrong question. The right question is, who is God? You see, in Psalm 9:10, it says, those who know his name will trust him. See, if you know who God is, if you know his character, if you know his power, his nature, his love, how he deals with the world, his mission, his sovereign plan, his truth, when you know who God is, you begin to trust him. Guys, just open up your New Testament and look at the prayers of the people in the New Testament. You know what they're praying about? They're praying that they would know God. If you just open up to the book of Ephesians and look at Paul's prayers. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God, I'm praying. I'm asking for myself and for everybody around me. I'm asking that I would know the riches of my inheritance in Christ, the immeasurable power of the resurrection. I'm asking that, that, that I would know how the, 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 uh, all the, the, that I have in Christ and for Christ and what he's going to do and how he's going to affect the church. That's what I want to know. And that's what you ought to be asking You ought to ask God, who is he? You want to know who God is. Now, God answers in verse 14 with this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Four letters in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? I think it's Yod, He, Vav, He, okay? Four letters. In the Hebrew alphabet, nobody knows exactly how to pronounce it. Most people say something to the effect of Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, but we don't know for sure. Um, four letters. It is very similar, and God points this out. God actually describes it in this way to the Hebrew verb to be or like to exist. All right. And so, so what does God say? He says, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. This word is is used 6,823 times in your Old Testament. God's personal name. Every time you open up your Bible in the Old Testament and you see the capital letters L-O-R-D, all in caps, that's Yahweh. That's God's personal name. Whenever you've come upon the word Lord, but it's capital L, little O, little R, little D, that's a different word. That's Adonai. That is, uh, that is the word that would mean uh, boss, king, ruler, master, you're above me. It's, it's the word for Adonai. But the Jews were so diligent about not taking God's name in vain that they would never say Yahweh. They would write the vowels for Adonai below Yahweh, and then they would, they would pronounce Adonai. They, they would remind themselves to say Adonai. They wouldn't even speak the divine name. This, this is God's personal name. You know, whenever you meet somebody, one, one of the first things that happens for you to know each other, for you to have a relationship is what? You got to know somebody's name. You can't call somebody, hey, buddy, forever, you know? Like, like there's a hindrance to your relationship if you don't know their name. And God, in in this passage, is revealing his name to Moses. He's revealing his name to us. Now, what kind of name is I am who I am? Well, let let me give you some characteristics of this name that make it awesome, okay? First of all, 
What God is saying is he is limitless and without boundaries, okay? So when God describes himself as I am, I am who I am, he is. He, he's saying I, I have no boundaries. You see, there's lots of names for God in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? El Shaddai, God Almighty. Uh, Jehovah Nisi, God our, our banner. Um, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. In the New Testament, you remember the whole gospel of John, Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door, right? Over and over again, God describing his character, God describing who he is. But here his personal name, his personal name is simply I am, okay? In the sense that God is, he is, he is all, he is every glorious thing to the infinite degree. You see, there's false gods in, in, in the Old Testament, false gods today. God's like one of the ones that occurs over and over in the Old Testament is Baal. He's the god of thunder, right? So whenever they thought of Baal, they thought, man, that's the dude that can throw lightning bolts, you know? But he's not much on compassion. He's not much on grace. He's not much on wisdom. He's a lightning bolt guy, right? All right, you should not do that with God. God is the great I am. In other words, every perfection, every glorious trait, Wisdom, power, love, mercy, sovereignty, omnipotence, omnipresence, every perfect characteristic, God is that to the very glorious end of the degrees, okay? God is that to perfection. God is glorious in every way. He is who he is. Number two, when God says, I am who I am, he is saying, God is who he is, not who you want him to be. I think the most common sin of idolatry in the United States of America is breaking the second commandment, okay? So the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, right? The second commandment says, you shall not make a graven image for yourself. In other words, the second commandment says, you shouldn't say, I worship Yahweh, and here's who he is. He's a tiger with elephant paws and uh, owl eyes, okay? Now, I know that sounds really ridiculous. If you've ever been to India, that is done everywhere. Okay? Every village you come into has this different God with these characteristics that they value. Okay? In other words, you, you, should not, you should not limit God to who you want him to be. All right, in, in America, how many times do you, do you see people saying something like this? My God just wants me to be happy. My God wouldn't send anyone to hell. My God is a God of love and not a God of judgment. Who are you talking about? You're not talking about the God of the Bible. Because you don't get to build a bear here, okay? You, you don't get to make your own God. You don't get, a, you don't get a gold, go to Golden Corral and say, well, I'd like a little of this and a little of that and a little of that. Oh, look, here's my God. You see that? that I know it sounds ridiculous. It is the most common form of idolatry in America. I talk to somebody every week who says, well, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I talked to somebody this morning who told me this, okay? But this thing here, no, I reject that. My God isn't that. I'm like, it's right here in the Bible. It's right here in his word. No, no, my God isn't that. What have they done? They, they've not said, my God is I am who I am. They've said, my God is the one who I make him to be. Friends, that is, that is idolatry. It is sin. And listen, you wouldn't do that to anybody else. Why, why would we think that we can do that to the God of the universe, to the one who holds all things together? I, I wouldn't do that to my wife. I might try, but man, I'm telling you what, she would not, she would not, 
She wouldn't have any part of it. I mean, there's no way that I could come up to Emma and say, hey, honey, let me tell you who you are. You know what? You don't care if I'm mean to you. You're just super easygoing, you know? And even if I insult you in public, you just let that roll off. I love that about you. That's who you are. And by the way, honey, you don't care if I'm unfaithful. You know, you're just real progressive like that, and you're, you're real enlightened, and, and you don't care about that. And, and oh, by the way, honey, here's a list of, the, of your hobbies. You like all these things, and, and here's, a, here's a list of things you don't like. And by the way, honey, this is how you're going to treat me, and this is what you're going to do for me, and, and, and because you just want me to be happy. That's who you are. By the way, sweetie, you are perfect. That would not fly in my marriage. Why would we think we can do that exact same thing to God? Because he is who he is. He is the great I am. All right? Thirdly, I am implies eternality. In verse 15, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, this will be my name forever. It is unchanging. Okay? How many of you have been team kid teachers Sunday school teachers, VBS teachers, maybe even just parenting your own kids, and you've had to field the question, who made God, right? That's one of the most popular questions that kids ask. You know why they ask that question? Because they don't know who God is. They don't know his name. You see, by his name, he says, I am who I am. What is he saying there? He is saying, I am self-sustaining. All right, I told you to remember something for 10 minutes, right? Have you done it? Remember the bush illustration, right? Moses walks up to this bush that is burning, this fire that is raging, this energy, this, this, this ball of, of, of energy that's raging, and yet it's not consuming anything. Nothing is feeding it. That's God. He is self-sustaining. He burns with this raging, limitless power from eternity past. He has had it stretching into eternity future. He will always have it. God does not wear out. He does not wind down. He does not get weary. He does not get tired. He does not get weak. You do not have to feed him. He is forever the engine, the power plan of the universe. He is. I am who I am. He is self-sustaining. He is dependent on no one and nothing. God is forever from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Beside me, there is no other. Jesus said of himself, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's like saying I'm the A and the Z. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I was, I am, and I will be. That is our God. He is who he is. Now, here is the problem with our world. The problem with our world is that's who God is. He has revealed himself as that. I am who I am. Every perfection to the glorious infinite degree ever-sustaining, ever-powerful, ever-sovereign, limitless. And our world is not interested in it. We'll spend six hours trying to figure out if dusty twig wood camo, if it, if it hides you from deer better than berry bushy wood camo. 
We could go to Bass Pro every day and study tri-tunes and bi-tunes and one-tunes. And we, we, could, we can pick up this, open it up to Facebook, and even though there's really not a lot of interesting things on there, we can look through this endlessly. I mean, just scrolling and scrolling. What do they call that? There's a name for that. The, the infinity pool. That's what they call it. There's always something else to scroll to. Man, we are interested in all of that, but not God. That's your brokenness. A lot of times when we think of sin, we think of, well, I get mad and I crack somebody over the head. That's why I'm a sinner. Or I, I'm always looking at things I shouldn't look at. Or I'm always... I'm always, I, you know, I hit my finger with a hammer and I say a bad word. You're right. Those things are sin. That's not the root of your sin. You know what the root of your sin is? You're interested in everything else but this God. He is the limitless, infinitely glorious, in beauty, power, majesty, soul satisfaction of the universe. He is who He is. I am who I am. And our broken hearts don't want him. That's our problem. How can we ignore this God? See, part of, our, part of fixing our God is coming to see his glory. Coming to get a little glimpse of his, of his majesty, of his goodness. And grabbing on to that with faith, Right? And then wanting more. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who, who grab onto God by faith and say, Okay, God, I, I, I see just a little bit, just a little glimmer of, of, of your greatness, of your glory. I see it in Jesus. I see it in your son who stepped out of the heavens and lived the perfect life and died on the cross for me. I, I see a little bit of his glory and I want more. God, show me more. Show me your glory. I want more of you. I want more of Jesus. Why do I say Jesus? In John, Gospel of John, chapter 8. Now, this is, this is when Jesus walked the earth during his incarnation, during his kingdom, his, his reign, his, his time here on earth, his ministry. Jesus is talking to these Jewish guys. And uh, they're having this conversation, and they're making fun of him. In verse 56, it says, Jesus says to them, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, you remember Abraham, he lived way back in Genesis, right? Jesus is way here in Matthew, and they're thousands of years apart. And so the Jewish guys, they all, they all guffaw over that. <laughs> okay, here's what they say back to him. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Ha, 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 ha. Okay. Jesus says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see that? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. He is the God of Exodus 3. In Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is this limitless, eternal, glorious God who has stretched out his hand to you 
that you might know his name. That you might know him personally. That you might turn from your sin. What does that mean to turn from your sin? Again, like sometimes I think we just mean, well, I did a bad thing last week, so I'm going to turn from that. Yes, that's true. But turning from your sin means turning from the brokenness of wanting everything else besides God. We've got this problem, guys. There, there's a limitless supply of prime rib, and we'd, we'd rather have chocolate-covered cockroaches, okay? Like that, that's, that's our problem spiritually, okay, spiritually. Spiritually, our problem is we don't want the thing that would satisfy our soul, which is God. And that's the thing that's got to be fixed in us. I hope you want him today. I hope you want him today. Let's ask for help in that. Father, I just thank you for this this passage that reveals your divine name, your glory, your goodness, your power, your majesty. And Father, I pray that you would whet our appetites for that. God, I pray that you would just reveal to us your glory. God, just give a glimmer today. God, I pray that you just open the door, just crack the door, God, and, and give a glimmer of your glory to the people in this room. God, that we might hunger for you. We might thirst for you. We might want you. Father, we love you. We pray that you draw us to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together.